Hello and welcome to the Strad Podcast. I'm Davina Shum, I'm a cellist and I'm the online editor at The Strad. Today's episode is all about performance anxiety. Every musician has experienced this in some shape or form. In this episode, you'll hear my conversation with violinist and high-performance coach for musicians, Dr. Renee Paul Gauthier. Originally from Canada, she's now based in Chicago, where alongside her busy performing career, she works to help musicians use self-compassion to gain clarity, unleash their full potential, and reach their desired outcome in their careers and lives. So naturally, we spoke about performance anxiety and nerves, as well as strategies musicians can employ to face these challenges. Here it is. Renee, thank you so much for joining me today on the Strad podcast. So we're here today to talk about self-compassion and how musicians can use that to deal with performance anxiety. So tell me a little bit, first of all, what is self-compassion? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me to talk about this very important topic. Self-compassion is a topic that thankfully we're talking more and more about in the classical music world, but used to have some sort of stigma attached to it. Because I think people associate self-compassion with self-indulgence, which is not the same thing. And I personally really see self-compassion as utmost self-respect, alignment with self, and also taking some time to ponder what do I want most and how can I create an environment for myself to operate at my best? And that really comes with paying attention to the needs to fulfill the human beings, making sure that as a functioning human, I attend to all of my needs. That includes resting. That includes having fulfilling relationships with friends and family and spouses and children you know, filling all of these creativity buckets with activities that we love, but really paying attention also mm -hmm. to our inner dialogue and creating an environment where as humans first and artists, we can operate at our best. You talk a lot about assessment versus judgment. So tell me a little bit more about the differences between the two. I really feel that when we start to pay attention to the way we talk to ourselves, we can become more objective. I like to compare judgment to creating a sandstorm in our head. So as humans, when we are attacked, our reflex is to defend ourselves or flee. So when we use negative language, negative tones, and we harbor all these negative feelings towards ourselves, as we're trying to work, we're trying to solve problems, we're trying to acquire skills, and we're having all of these negative thoughts words and feelings towards ourselves, we're actively attacking ourselves, And the brain is not really good at differentiating if it's a real attack or something that is perfectly something we can handle. And it's also not very good at knowing if it's coming from the outside or the inside. It just perceives an attack. So then it starts to defend itself. That creates a lot of mental chaos, mental clutter, a lot of tension, both mentally and physically. And when we're tense and we have this mental clutter, we have these spiraling thoughts, we're physically tense, we're defending ourselves, our heart rate accelerates, right? Like the human body is amazing at trying to stay alive. So if it feels attacked, it's going to do everything it can to keep us safe. 
and we're trying to do work in there. But we're having this inner battle between our inner bully and our, you know, sense of self who's trying to stay safe. So when we're trying to get some really great work done, what we really need is go back to a place of bare awareness, which is one of the tenet of what I teach in my system, the deep practice model. We need to be assessing. When we're judging, we lose all objectivity. So obstacles feel overwhelming. Again, we get this mental clutter because we're busy trying to defend ourselves and attacking ourselves at the same time. How can anyone get anything done? So assessing what is means to go with the information because we can tackle information. So if I know F sharp is too sharp, I can fix that. If I tell myself you have no intonation, I'm already fighting a losing battle. It's changing your approach. It's changing the way that you assess what it is that you do. So, I mean, you could look at that F sharp and be like, that F sharp's a little bit out of tune, and then you do whatever's necessary to fix yes. it. But then if judgment kicks in, it's more like, oh, my F sharps are never in tune. My intonation's terrible, and then it spirals yes. out of control. We go quickly from this is out of tune to I'm the worst human being on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's a slippery slope, isn't it? But I can see how that that happens because it's this sort of avalanche effect, isn't it? And then that classic thing of if you start telling yourself that, you start to believe it as well. Yes. You basically tie your own hands with your judgment. Yeah. So is this something that you found in your own personal experience? I've always been extremely judgmental with myself, very harsh with myself. And as I elevated my levels of awareness and grew as a person and, you know, had to overcome adversity and some traumatic experiences, I really realized that self-judgment is destructive. And then as I started to teach more and more and had to deal with students' trauma and help them work through it and see that I can get the best out of them and myself when I am supportive, when I use positive language, when together we look at the data, at the information, at what's happening, and we brainstorm on how to fix it rather than just create a negative environment. So I want that for both myself and all of my students and my clients. I really just feel like the best way to operate at the highest level is to create an inner environment of self-respect. Mm-hmm. Because if you look after yourself first, then you have that mental energy and physical energy to be able to look after people around you. And like I said, self-respect means in no way to lower your standard, to expect less of yourself. It's not the same as self-indulgence because actually self-indulgence is not self-compassion. It's not compassionate to not take action that could serve us. It's not compassionate to give up on ourselves or to cope with not practicing, not signing up for concerts. So self-indulgence is not the most compassionate way to go about things. Self-compassion means to look at what serves me best, what allows me to operate optimally. That reminds me of something really interesting I saw recently. And, you know, there's that classic saying, do as you would to others as you would want others to do to you, something along those lines. But it's also very important to think do to yourself as you would other yes. people. Absolutely. Yeah, because I think people forget to look after themselves yes. and they're quite often addressing the needs and expectations of other people that 
they tend to neglect their own personal dilemmas. So when you catch yourself in the act of being your own self-aggressor, one of the easiest ways to come around this, first of all, noticing it is already winning the battle. But then if you have a hard time being compassionate to yourself, separate yourself and see yourself as both your own teacher, your wise, loving, supportive, yet demanding guide, and the way you would treat a student that you respect, you know, that you are interested and invested in guiding them in growth. So how would you talk to that person? It usually ends up being very different than the way we talk to ourselves. That's so true, isn't it? Treat yourself as if you were talking to your own student. So I wanted to talk a little bit about high pressure peak performance anxiety. There's been a lot of coverage in the news because of recent events in the Tokyo Olympics, you know, high-performing athletes who are taking time out to tend to their mental health. You know, not only um, athletes such as Simone Biles, the gymnast, but also the French Open and Wimbledon with Naomi Osaka, deciding not to do press conferences because they were damaging to Mm -hmm. herself. So, you know, what do you do when you have these anxious thoughts, you know, these inner battles when the stakes are so high. I compare this to, you know, for example, children who may not have this feeling of fear or concept of threat, but then once you get more experience, the bar is raised. How do you deal with thoughts then Mm. under so much pressure? That's really interesting. And it's a big part of my life coaching work is this anxiety is created by thoughts that we're having So the difference between the adult and the child is what has changed and what we're thinking. So the athletes that you just mentioned and, you know, us as musicians, we're highly trained and we do a lot of performance work. I mean, I have coaching programs where that's what I do with my clients. I train them to perform. But then there's the thinking that comes into play. So we can be 100% prepared and we can have done visualization and adversity training and all of these things. But then how can we start to turn around what we're thinking? Again, I'm going to bring it back to self-compassion, self-alignment, and a very great sense of self in general. And if we can turn the experience into something that is highly personal, we need to detach ourselves from the outer judgment. Actually, we never have any control on what other people are going to think, even when we play at our best. (laughs) Because people who want to do us well will be happy, but people who want us to, to lose that medal will be upset. So regardless of what you do, someone will be happy and someone will be upset. Yes. And you can't change that, exactly. can you? I think that's that classic thing where you're you're so worried about what other people think, but you forget that all of those people you're worried about are just worried about what you think and they're having their own inner battles. They're not thinking about exactly. you. <laughs> Sometimes an example I use is, you know, you listen to Hilary Hahn or Gil Shaham. How do you pick? People will have different opinions and that takes away nothing from Hillary or Gil, regardless of what people think. So how can you really turn the experience inward? The only thing we can do is prepare. We can practice the music. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are ways to strengthen our self-confidence to get mentally prepared and to get in an optimal state for performance, but also 
how do we then start to have this awareness of our thoughts? Because the anxiety, the feelings are created by the thought, but what we're thinking. And then from this anxiety, we take actions or we don't take actions. So what is the thought at the root of this anxiety? And how can you maybe turn this around into something that serves you? Because that's the beauty about thoughts is we can actually look at them and decide that we don't want to believe them anymore. What would be the most helpful thing for you to think about an upcoming performance? And how can you turn this into a highly personal experience, into giving you so much grace for this act of courage of stepping on stage and performing for people, into an act of growth, all the work that we put to prepare for a performance. This is enriching the human that we are. So if we can really look at the thought that's creating the anxiety, observe it, and then decide, is there something else that I'd rather think and believe and see how those feelings of anxiety maybe morph into something that serves you better? Yeah, one, one thing I wanted to ask really quickly is how would you tell the difference between these negative thoughts and also that really physical feeling of, you know, butterflies <laughs> in your tummy, you know, that's the adrenaline and like quite often I think it can be distracting and you think it, it can be sort of the same thing. Yes. But people quite often say that the butterflies in the stomach, that's a good yeah. thing because the adrenaline will get you through. What do you say to people who have that feeling like they're going to throw up before they go on stage? <laughs> oh, it's so tricky. And the approach, of course, would be different from people to people. I do feel that what works well for me, what works well for my clients and the students that I guide through uh, performance preparation is getting familiar with this feeling. So yes, we can do anxiety management techniques, we can visualize, we can uh, channel positive emotions. All of these things are fantastic, but we want to get acquainted with those sensations of butterflies. We want to get acquainted with this fear. We want to perform and perform and perform. And I'm saying this because I don't want to use the word mock performance anymore. I can decide to perform for myself in my practice room and call mm -hmm. that a performance. So I feel like performing a lot and really understanding that we can perform at our best while experiencing butterflies. So to get very mm -hmm. comfortable with those sensations and yes. on performance day to know that well, okay, the butterflies are here. That was to be expected. And I can play my best and I can enjoy this performance. And the thing is, when we stop to fear the butterflies, they start to lose their grip on us. So we feel them, we acknowledge their presence, and then we hop on stage. And, you know, at times they actually go away. Yep. Butterflies can help us propel into fantastic performances yes. that we wouldn't yes. expect. It's true what you said also about there are ways that we can think differently about the butterflies. So in thinking, this is a sign that I'm excited. Even just understanding the physical mechanisms. While the butterflies are coming from my elevated heart rate and I'm having all of this influx of hormones, this is what the body does. This is normal. This is my body doing its job. And then, of course, to that, you could add breathing exercises and ways to get some leverage over these physical sensations, lower your heart rate, hormone production, things like this. So it's such a fascinating topic. 
There's so much into it and it all seems to be about the way that we talk to ourselves. Well, Renee, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your thoughts on self-compassion and performance anxiety. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That was Dr. Renee Paul Gauthier. If you're wanting to find out more about how to deal with performance anxiety and nerves, check the show notes for Renee's website and her podcast on the topic, the Mind Over Finger podcast. And don't forget to check out thestrad.com for the latest news and articles on all things to do with string playing. And if you like what you see, register and subscribe to access exclusive archival content from 2010 onward. Remember, we've got 50% off an online subscription for students check the show notes for the link. Thanks for listening and tune in again soon for another episode. Bye. Yeah, there's no music this week.